Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, March 8th. 2011. Looking at what we have on deck today, oh man, we're going to hear from Doug Padgett and Patricia King today, as well as Joshua Mills. Oh, grab a crash helmet. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and more importantly, to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Real discernment work requires you to actually listen to people. It requires you to understand, comprehend, and correctly uh, retell what it is that somebody believes and then be able to know the Bible well enough to decide whether what they're saying to you is true or whether what they're saying to you is new or false. You know, it requires you to actually do the work. You don't get to do this job uh, you know, using guilt by association type arguments or things of that nature, engaging in tabloid discernment or, or anything of the sort. It actually requires you to do the work of a Berean, hear what somebody says and go, hmm, I'm not sure if that sounds right. Let's check what God's Word says. Why? Because according to the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said that all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness— all Scripture is God-breathed. As a, as a result of the fact that even though the uh, human authors associated with the Bible, uh, with the biblical text, that there are many of them, uh, the divine author that inspired all of them, there's only one of them. And by the fact that he is God and that he cannot lie and that in his nature there is no uh, ability within this character to deceive us, uh, we can know what he's revealed in his word to be true, to be accurate. And when somebody is teaching something about God, um, well, you see, this is where it gets really interesting. I'm, you know, I'm currently doing a ton of research, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of reading. And uh, as a result of a conversation that I had with Brian McLaren, um, trying to track something down in his thinking and... Uh, and I, I picked up a book uh, talk, entitled The Nonviolent Atonement. 
And I was, uh, it's just a train wreck of a book. But it, what I see in that book is this is the typical liberal slash emergent uh, false premise, and that is is that apparently we can come to the biblical text and just use it to weave our own theologies. Yet no, we don't get to do that. Yet no, we we theology isn't progressing. We don't get to just invent new things and and say you know why don't we rework the atonement so that we can figure out how it would how it would feel or how it would operate in 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 a nonviolent feminist marxist light or how can we rework the atonement in light of uh in light of slavery or the oppression of indigenous people or or it, uh, it's you know we don't get to do that we don't get to do that God has revealed what God has revealed plain and simple we don't get to monkey with the text and basically use it to create a tapestry of our own revelation of our own ideas. And pastors are not called to preach their own ideas. They're called to preach the word. In other words, the word of God, God's text as he has revealed, as he has revealed himself. So I think one of the interesting things as we watch this Rob Bell debacle just continue to unfold, because uh, keep this in mind, He's not going to come out as a full-blown universalist, at least in the sense where, well, everyone's in. It's, you know, no, he he's actually, you know, word on the street, based on those who've actually read the book and are writing about the content of it, Rob Bell is, uh, he, he basically, his position, he's turned hell into purgatory. And uh, and, and so the, the eventual result is that eventually hell will be completely empty. Um, it's not an it's not annihilationism. It's kind of like I, I think some people are term, terming uh, Rob Bell's position ultimate reconciliation or something along those lines. And ultimate reconciliation is a form of you know as a subheading un, uh, you know, under the general term universalism. It, it ultimately results in everybody's in. And what's interesting about uh, that position is, is that if Rob Bell's, if, if that's really his position, and that's you know really what he believes, I mean, I mean, you really, uh, you don't need the cross at all to be saved. Uh, the reason why is because those people who go to hell, well, they're paying for their sins and burning off whatever bad karma they've uh, earned, uh, you know, this side of their entrance into heaven or the uh, the new ki- uh, the kingdom of god on earth whatever it's going to be i you know i don't know but uh, at least i don't i don't know rob bells where he's going to go with all this but the point of the point of it is is this i mean if ultimately everyone's going to be reconciled and all of the passages that talks about talk about eternal damnation um actually don't turn out to be eternal um well then live it up i mean Life is boring and, 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 you know, just suppressing our sinful flesh. I mean, just go and party like it's 1999 and don't worry about it. Yeah, you'll have to pay for your sins for some time in hell, but eventually you'll be in and no big deal. And you don't even need Jesus. You don't need repentance and the forgiveness of your sins. I mean, if you're going to go to hell, then ultimately you're the one who pays for your sins, not Jesus, right? Anyway, so I'm I'm kind of off topic, but... Anyway, so this this whole Rob Bell debacle is just anyway, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> but the point is that I was making earlier is that 
Rob, I mean, everyone's talking about, well, Rob Bell, he has the right to ask these questions. He, you know, who cares what he believes? And that's, he's entitled to his, you know, he's not. Pastors are not entitled to their own beliefs. That is absolutely patently false. I mean, do you see a bunch of Muslims running around saying, well, we can, we can choose to believe whether, you know, all these imams out there, you get to decide whether or not you think Muhammad is actually a prophet of God. I mean, that one's kind of up for grabs. I mean, and, and so, I mean, Islam would collapse upon itself if you had a bunch of imams running around going, yeah, I'm not so sure about the uh, Muhammad being a prophet of God, and I'm not so sure, you know, yeah, I, I'm not, I, this Quran stuff being the actual word of Allah, yeah, you know, you take it or leave it. And, I mean, Islam would just go, you know, and fall apart. Same with Christianity. Pastors do not have the, quote, right to just preach whatever they want or think whatever they want to think or embrace whichever doctrines they feel like uh, they want to embrace. No, Christianity has a set of doctrines and has a revelation that Christian pastors are supposed to actually believe, teach, and confess, and to pass along to the next generation of Christians. I mean, if Christianity is whatever you want it to be, and and, and, and you, anyone's opinion about what the Bible says is as good as anyone else's opinion, then Christianity just goes, and falls in on itself. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things. So, no, you don't, yeah, the job of the pastor is to preach the word, not his own opinions, and you don't get to, you don't have the freedom in Christianity to say, you know, that whole idea about Jesus violently suffering for the sins of people, yeah, the, uh, I just hate the assumptions about all of that, and 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 I just have this sneaking suspicion that that uh, when it comes to things of that nature, you know, this idea of the atonement that 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 God had to punish Jesus and it was violent, and, and then He was pun- being punished for our sins. Well, I don't like the implications of what that means regarding God. I, I would prefer a non-bloody, non-violent view of the atonement, uh, one that makes Jesus into somebody more akin to Gandhi with a beard. Yeah, so we can say that really what Jesus was all about was, uh, you know, protests against the empire using non-violence. <laughs> yeah, no, you you don't have the freedom to do that because that's number one. That's not what the text says. And uh, when you look at how the church has understood the text from the beginning, yeah, none of that stuff is is, is there at like at all. And so, yeah, no, 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 no. You just it's just absolutely flabbergasting, you know, that people think that they can just approach the text and hey, you know, this is what I think about it, you know. But then again, hasn't um, the predominant uh, small group Bible study question? been uh, the thing that has taught people that this is exactly what they're supposed to do with the Bible? And you're going, what is the predominant small group Bible study question? It is, what does this verse mean to you? Yeah, I, I I think that that particular question has done more damage to the body of Christ than you can possibly imagine, and it, I think, has played a instrumental role in all of the nonsense that we see being kicked around out there in the name of Jesus and theology and doctrine that doesn't even remotely sound or look or feel like anything that has, that's been revealed uh, in God's Word or the Christian church has taught from the beginning. Just an observation on Anyway, so uh, what we're going to do today, um, we're going to take a look at uh, Doug, <laughs> Doug Paget has put a <laughs> he's put up a YouTube video, and uh, he, he's taking issue with a tweet that uh, John Piper sent out, 
And the the tweet, all it said was, farewell, Rob Bell. And um, Doug Padgett actually thinks that that's a very nefarious, coded message. And uh, he's put up a, a YouTube video that I'll share with you. And I'm just, I'm just going to ask the question, I mean, based upon what uh, Doug Padgett thinks about this. Um, do you think John Piper is a mafia don? That's the question that we're going to answer when we look at uh, Doug Padgett's video. And uh, and then we're going to, uh, have, probably right after the break, listen a little bit to um, Patricia King and Joshua Mills tell us about supernatural evangelism. I you know, the yeah, wait till you hear this. This ought to be interesting. And then uh, Albert Muller and Tim Challies have both weighed in regarding the brouhaha, uh, the dust-up uh, regarding the doctrine of hell as a result of the deconstructing questions asked by Rob Bell's marketing video uh, for his new book. And uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at – hopefully we'll be able to look at both of them. If I don't have time for both of them, I'll do one uh, today and, and then one uh, either tomorrow or the next day on Fighting for the Faith, depending on where we uh, put our – uh, light version for the week. So we got lots of stuff to do today. And uh, with that, let's dive into the program proper. I don't have any music for this, but um, let me play for you a little bit of audio. Uh, it's a very short video that uh, Doug Padgett put on his uh, YouTube account and uh, and sent a tweet out and put it on his blog. And uh, and the, qu- the question he asks is, what did John Piper mean by farewell Rob Bell? I'm not trying to rhyme, but I mean, that was the tweet. But so here, here's Doug Padgett. Hi, this is Doug Padgett. Hey, I like to do my blog posts by video and audio submission rather than just by typing things because I think it adds a different flavor to how we can talk about topics. Well, in the last week, there has been this whole news story that has generated around Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Now, Rob's a friend of mine, and I'm in agreement with him on the point that he makes in the book. But Rob tries to raise the idea that heaven and hell is not as we've often thought about it, that maybe there's another story going on. There's different questions that need to be asked. And we need to reconsider the way that some of our Christian tradition has told the stories of heaven and hell and what life is all about. Well, what made this big news was that another person named John Piper, who's a pastor at a church here in the Twin Cities, wrote a tweet. And he said in his tweet, farewell, Rob Bell in reference to this book and to this video. Now, what was John doing there? Here's what I think. I think he was sending a message. I think he was sending a message not to Rob because there's nothing for which he could say to Rob farewell about. They don't run in the same networks. They're not in the same groups. He can't kick him out of anything. What was John saying? I think he was saying to his followers. I think he was saying to the people in his network. I think he was saying to the young reformers that listened to his opinion. If you listen to Rob Bell, if you believe Rob Bell, it will be farewell to you. Okay. Okay. Oh man. I, I, okay. I've decided that you remember the Katie Sousa, uh, video we played, uh, was it a couple weeks ago where she said that Jesus wants to go back in time. This is another one of those videos that I think actually needs a soundtrack. And, uh, and so as I was listening to Doug Padgett and, you know, and him opining, you know, basically thinking that what was really going on here was that, 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 um, John Piper was sending a message John, I, I, I kind of pictured John Piper, you know, with a fedora uh, hat on and uh, a, a 1920s gangsta suit and uh, and a um, and a Tommy gun, you know. And uh, it, with that in mind, uh, I've kind of reworked the video just a little bit, and I've added a soundtrack to it. And see if this if this if this fits. 
Well, what made this big news was that another person named John Piper, who's a pastor at a church here in the Twin Cities, wrote a tweet. And he said in his tweet, farewell, Rob Bell, in reference to this book and to this video. Now, what was John doing there? Here's what I think. I think he was sending a message. I think he was sending a message not to Rob because there's nothing for which he could say to Rob farewell about. They don't run in the same networks. They're not in the same groups. He can't kick him out of anything. What was John saying? I think he was saying to his followers. I think he was saying to the people in his network. I think he was saying to the young reformers that listened to his opinion. If you listen to Rob Bell, if you believe Rob Bell, it will be farewell to you. I think he was saying anyone who listens to Rob, you will be outside to me. I will say farewell to you. So I think he was sending a message, and I think it's a dastardly one. I think there's something really, really wrong about sending a message. If you listen to that book, if you listen to those ideas, if you believe that, then it will be farewell to you. Now, I haven't asked John about this. Maybe he wants to respond, but I think that's what he was up to. I think that's what was going on. So let me know what you think. You can leave a comment. You can leave a video post or an audio post, and uh, I'd be interested in your take on that. Thanks. So there you go. Uh... John Piper, the mafioso, the, you know, maybe he's running with the Sopranos. I, yeah. You read Rob Bell's book, you are dead to me. I kill you. Yeah, n- no, <laughs> Doug, um, I don't think that's what's really going on there. But um, let's just take your idea and say, okay, sure, that's what he was doing. He was sending a coded message to all of the young and restless reformed out there who uh, still listen to him and basically saying, you you listen to Rob Bell, you read Rob Bell, you agree with his deconstructing questions and new view of the, uh, of the afterlife and uh, you're dead to me, you are gone. Um, yeah, l- let's uh, spend a little bit of time in the biblical text. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Luke chapter 20, verse 45. Luke chapter 20, verse 45. Um, I'm going to read to you a a section of the gospel um, where Jesus kind of takes on people who are teaching false doctrine, if you would. And and so a portion of this uh, segment of Scripture that I'm going to read is, well, it's in the red letters. So we read, um, In the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and and places of honors at the feasts. And they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Apparently Jesus uh, just wasn't a welcomer of all religious ideas. And uh, here he was basically saying, beware of the scribes, and talked about their, you know, some of the f- bad fruit of their false religion, if you would, and even took the time to warn his disciples about that. Yeah, I don't think Jesus was a mafia, Don, do you? Um, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 1, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were uh, trampling one another. He, Jesus began to say to his disciples, uh, first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So, you know, again, see, Jesus, I, he just wasn't quite this open guy where it was an anything goes free for all, and you know, and as as far as things were concerned. And so, he was warning the disciples about the Pharisees and their false teaching. Yet, I don't hear any complaints about Jesus being a mafia don. You know, um, 
and then you you've got uh, you know Revelation chapter two verse six. Uh, Jesus uh, appeared to the apostle John and had him write letters uh, to different churches in Asia Minor. And uh, Jesus, this is another section in the red letters. Jesus in Revelation chapter two verse six said this to one of the churches. Yet this, uh, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Um, and what we learn from church history, uh, from uh, the church father Irenaeus in his book, uh, that where he uh, he attack he basically took down and and uh, obliterated the heresy of the uh, Valentinian Gnostics. Um, he he actually laid out for us what the Nicolaitan heresy was. These are people who t- basically took the uh, the gospel, uh, you know, the forgiveness of sins, and turned it into a license for sin. They were uh, antinomians, if you would, and and were engaging in all kinds of sexual immorality and things of that nature. And Jesus said that he hated the work works of the Nicolaitans. Now, could you imagine, uh, you know, if one of the Nicolaitans back then had you know written a book. Uh, talking about love wins. Uh, in, in, back then, it would have been Eros wins, and uh, and you know if we had taken Doug Paget's take, you know, and you know, and Jesus here saying that he hates the work of the Nicolaitans, and and apparently Jesus is basically saying to the churches, you you listen to the Nicolaitans, yeah, you you read the you read the book that they've written, Eros wins. Well, uh, I've got something bad's going to happen to you. Uh, that, that's kind of how Jesus was talking here in Revelation chapter two, verse six. He said that he hated, hated the works of the Nicolaitans, and and then Jesus also in that same chapter talks about um, a a gal who who likened herself to be a prophetess. And here's what Jesus said about her: He says, "I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality." And to eat food that are, that is sacrificed to idols. Apparently, love didn't win in this particular case, and Jesus really wasn't keen and hip on Jezebel and what she was teaching people. Um, and then you got the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter sixteen, verse seventeen, saying, "I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught." And he says, "Avoid them." Avoid them. So, so we got Jesus, according to the eyewitnesses, you know, being a warning people about false doctrine and false teaching. And so, Jesus is actually probably the head of the whole Christian mafia, if you would. And uh, and then you know, one of his lieutenants, you know, uh, you know, when his lesser lieutenants, the apostle Paul, you know, carried on this mafioso mentality and uh, warned the Roman churches to watch out for those who cause uh, divisions and teach things that are contrary to the doctrine that they've been. Taught, and he says to avoid them, and so you know, I the way I see it, Doug, is is that if even if we took your nefarious interpretation um, about what it is that John Piper really meant in that tweet that he sent out, um, it seems to me that um, warning people that uh, we're not going to tolerate false doctrine in our churches is. Um, is a tradition that goes all the way back to the king mafioso himself, Jesus Christ. And so I, I think John Piper's in pretty good company. Uh, <clears throat> what do you think? All right, we're uh, up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. 
Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. I'm going to go check in with the Godfather. We, we take a break here. I'll, I'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, it takes more than guilt by association and slippery slope arguments to actually do biblical discernment. You have to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, do the work of a Berean. All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you. This is a partnership. I do the work. You you, you laugh, you cry, you learn. it. That's how this works. And so if uh, you don't already support us financially, then please do so. You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 all right uh moving along here
are you familiar with the concept of supernatural evangelism? Now, I, I understand that you, when we talk about evangelism, it, it's a proper to talk about it in such a way that um, that you understand that when somebody is regenerated, is raised from the dead, and uh, and is brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins, uh, and given faith to trust in Christ, um, that all of that is a miracle from God. But somehow, I just don't think that that's exactly what it is that Patricia King and Joshua Mills are talking about. In this program, um, entitled Supernatural Evangelism, Supernatural Evangelism. Uh, yeah, so uh, here, let's uh, listen and see if you can make heads or tails of this, uh, or if what we're really just hearing is, um, well, uh, two hucksters, you know, trying to uh, make coin off of people. Maybe I, you know, maybe that's just a, a an overly I'm, maybe I'm overstating the case here, but here, listen in. And I'm glad that you've joined us for today's program. I have a very special friend with me today, Joshua Mills. It's awesome to have you with us. Thank you. I always you. love it when you come because I never know what God's <laughs> going to do when you're around. You never know. You, you never, never know. know. And do. we've always had lots of surprises. Yeah. Sometimes in a studio or in a meeting or or in our home when you've stayed. I always love it when you and Janet stay in our home <laughs> yeah. because you never know what, what deposits are going to be left behind. But today we're going to talk about um, uh, soul winning in the glory. And um, I'm excited. I, I've never <laughs> heard that phrase until I saw this video, soul winning in the glory. Okay. About that, and I've heard some of your testimonies before, and they're outrageous. I love them. God did- that's good. That's a good word. That that's a perfectly good word. They're outrageous. It's amazing things. You know? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's so easy when the glory manifests, right? Right. It's exactly. Easy. It makes but, the world a difference. <laughs> but you have written a new book called Simple supernatural Supernatural. and it's 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 awesome it's just simple supernatural okay it includes teaching on soul winning in the glory right healing in the glory right and and how to receive and minister the baptism of the holy ghost so we got soul winning in the glory do we have scuba diving in the glory um how about mountain climbing in the glory how about uh cycling in the glory how about a line dancing in the glory? Um, you know, how about shaving in the glory? Uh, you know, how about baking in the glory? You know, I uh, can't wait to see what other chapters can go. Yeah, I mean, the, all the thing. I mean, the things that you can do in the glory are just expanding daily. And um, uh, yeah, I don't recall any of. Yeah, anyway. Okay, and by the way, he, here we've got a biblical, uh, apparently this idea, baptism in the Holy Spirit. But um, hmm, I know the references that uh, people use to uh, talk about the baptism in the Holy Spirit from the uh, the book of Acts. And uh, somehow I don't think that what it is he's describing is even remotely consistent uh, with what the biblical text talks about. But let, let's continue. It's incredible. Yeah. I love it. So we're going to stock up on all those in our ministry and get them out there because it's a a really good subject. But um, Joshua, why don't you just share a little bit about some of your experiences when God has come manifest glory and then making soul winning easy? Yeah, because I oh man, can you imagine how much easier it would be 
um, if you know if if there was all these glory manifestations, how much easier the task of evangelism would be. If if only you know we had the glory showing up, and uh, you know because miracles, that's the surest and easiest way of. Boom, you know, getting people to uh, be saved. Yeah. I think one of the, the testimonies I can think of right now when we're talking about this is when I was preparing to minister uh, in Toronto. I was getting ready for the meeting, put on a brand new suit, you know, right fresh out of the dry cleaning bags, went to go down uh, the elevator in the hotel, uh, pushed the button to go down. The doors open on the elevator. Here there's three people standing on the elevator, and uh, I go to get into the elevator. I didn't perceive what God was about to do. I didn't have a revelation of it, but I simply walked into the elevator. And at that moment that I literally walked in to the elevator, it is like the dump truck of heaven (laughs) opened over top of my head and covered me with gold from the top of my head all the way right down to my feet. These people are standing there on the elevator watching me get in. And I mean, they start. How much you want to bet he just fumbled the glitter bottle that he was trying to hide in his coat pocket? just freaking out they are yelling and screaming and <laughs> shouting and they don't have a clue what's going on and i think that well, they're the seeing is, it right in front of their eyes exactly they're seeing, they're seeing something happen if i can interject here i've actually oh please do patricia please seen that on you in an right. elevator right. when we were in new mexico i remember and that right actually you came into the meeting um after it, it had started right and i was i had my eyes closed in worship so i didn't realized that you had come and then I saw you and greeted you. Now listen carefully to her language here. I'm going to point out a word that she uses because in the past they've called these gold dust miracles. And Joshua Mills said that the dump truck of heaven just dumped gold all over him. But listen to the, listen to the way Patricia talks about it. And you had um, a dark jacket on and I never noticed any um, glitter or anything on you. What'd you call that again? uh, Patricia, did you call it glitter? Yeah, she did. And then I continued worshiping, and I felt the Holy Spirit tell me to look over. And I looked over, and I started seeing it appear. It just it started appearing, right? Right. And um, and yeah, simple parlor trick. Um, then I I I sensed. I didn't see with open eye, but I sensed the angel behind you that was bringing this. And I said right. to you after, did you know that you have an angel that brings this? And of course, you said yes. You understood that. But when we went back to the hotel that night. Um, your PA took you up into the elevator, and the elevator was covered in glitter. I remember the whole... Covered in what? What What? What was it covered in? Glitter. Yeah, I mean, sounds to me like uh, Joshua Mills just made a trip over to Michael's and, uh, you know, the arts and crafts store and, you know, stocked up on some standard glitter. And um, rather than having the dump truck of heaven spill out all over him, you know, it was he was in the elevator, and the elevator is a perfectly great place because if you're in there by yourself, you know, you know, no one can see what you're doing. And it sounds to me like uh, he just dropped his his bottle of glitter and it got all over him, and mm-hmm. carpet, every the floor of the elevator just plastered, covered yeah, for the whole plastered. time we were there for days. Right. But then I think the next day. You went down in a different elevator, and I knew that you'd been there because when right. I went into the elevator, right. I saw all the glitter and came. Yeah, that's right. That's what it is. It's not gold dust. It's glitter. It right, was just right. amazing. Right. It is amazing. It's a sign and a wonder. It is. And sometimes people ask about these signs and wonders. And it's- yeah. How is glitter a sign or a wonder? I mean, 
basically what you do, Joshua, you, it's it it looks to me like you've mastered a couple of nice little sleight of hand uh, magic tricks. You know, the, the kind of stuff that you you know go down to your local magic store and say, you know, hey, you know, you know, I, I'm looking for a new trick. You know, I, I I've mastered the one where it looks like I'm pulling my finger off of you know and, and it's breaking apart. And uh, you know, I need something. I, I need something that you know wow people. You know. And you know, that this this all can be easily explained, really easily explained by the fact that every time I've seen him perform these little miracles, he's wearing a coat with long sleeves. It's just it's easy just to tell people God gives signs to yeah. make us wonder. Exactly. Um, you know, signs are to get our eyes on to Jesus Christ. And so that's why God was even doing this in that elevator with these three people standing there is that God wanted to give them a visual, a, a demonstration of his love, of his power, yes. uh, of salvation, really. Really. And how does glitter, um, how is that a sign of their salvation? Hmm? And, um, you know, that's why God's doing these signs and wonders in the earth right. is so that we can become soul winners in the glory. Um, God is giving. So we can become soul winners in the glory, uh, scuba diving in the glory, baking in the glory. Yes, the miracles so that we can win souls. That's what, what this is all about is souls and harvest. Yes. And so here I am in this elevator, people yelling, <laughs> screaming, shouting, don't have a clue what's going on, but they know something unusual is happening. I can just hear you saying, look at this. Exactly. I just hear it. <laughs> and here the, the elevator door closes behind me. It didn't take me very long to realize that these people are on for the ride, whether they liked it or not. Right. You know, God will put you in these situations where you can talk to people, you can minister sure. to people. And, and, and it's like it's just a divine appointment. Right. What was so divine about that particular divine appointment where they were basically thinking, what's with the glitter? I mean, did you tell them about the God who was hanging dead for them on the cross? Jesus, yeah. And they're th stuck there. Exactly. That's what that was. <laughs> that was a divine appointment. And, um, and so anyhow, God gave me these words to say to them. I said, this is a miracle from God because Jesus loves you. That was all I had to say. And the one woman in the center, she just began crying, just tears. And she said that they were down in downtown Toronto that very afternoon. Somebody had tried to tell them about Jesus, but they just kept on walking. Wow. And, you know, that's the thing. There's a lot of people all over the world that, that have heard uh, the, the gospel, but they just keep on running, just keep on walking. But the Bible says this, that signs will confirm yes, the word, the, the preaching word. of the word. Oh, wow. And so that's what God was doing. Those just simply telling them that Jesus loves them. I mean, yeah, hmm. yeah. let's take a look at uh, Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 8. And, uh, and let's take a look at a real miracle, one, one that, you know, no mistaking it that this wasn't a magic trick. Now at Lystra, Acts chapter 14, verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Now this is a miracle. Now he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. A bonafide miracle here. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the Laconian, uh, in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. 
And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good, uh, with the food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. But the Jews from Antioch and Iconium and ha- uh, <laughs> came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they ended up stoning Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. You got to be careful of doing that evangelism in the glory; it could get you killed. <sighs> yeah, the point. <sighs> yeah, the the point I'm making here is is that I seriously, seriously, seriously doubt that Joshua Mills actually has an angel, and that glitter is really a confirmation of the message that he speaks because he doesn't sound like he quite preaches the same message that the Apostle Paul preaches. So, uh, I mean, even if it turned it turned out to be a valid miracle, this guy's a false prophet, and you can tell just by listening to his message. And I've heard him preach before, and it's creepy bad. Anyway, all right, moving along here. Um, yeah, we need to uh, play our vintage news music. From the albertmuller.com website, Albert Muller is weighed in on this hell debate. The name of the article is Doing Away with Hell, Part 1. Current controversies uh, raise the issue anew among American Christians and even among some evangelicals. Nevertheless, there is no way to deny the Bible's teaching on hell and remain truly and genuinely evangelical. No doctrine stands alone, says Albert Muller, and he is spot on absolutely right. <clears throat> Here's what Albert Muller says. This is After reviewing the rise of the modern age, the Italian literary critic Piero Camporesi commented, quote, We can now confirm that hell is finished, that the great theater of torments is closed for an indeterminate period, and that after 2,000 years of horrifying performances, the play will not be repeated. The long triumphal season has come to an end, like a play... With a good run, the curtain has finally come down, and for millions around the world, the biblical doctrine of hell is but a distant memory. For so many persons in this postmodern world, the biblical doctrine of hell has become simply unthinkable. Have postmodern Westerners just decided that hell is no more? Can we really just think the doctrine away? Oz Guinness notes that Western societies, quote, have reached the state of pluralization where choice is not just a state of affairs, it is a state of mind. Choice has become a value in itself, even a priority. To be modern is to be addicted to choice and change. Change becomes the very essence of life. Personal choice becomes the urgency, what sociologist Peter Berger calls the heretical imperative. In in such a context, theology undergoes rapid and repeated transformation driven by cultural currents, 
For millions of persons in the postmodern age, truth is a matter of personal choice, not divine revelation. Clearly, we moderns do not choose for hell to exist. This process of change is often invisible to those experiencing it and denied by those promoting it. As David F. Wells comments, quote, The stream of historic orthodoxy that once watered the evangelical soul is now damned by a worldliness that many fail to recognize as worldliness because of the cultural innocence with which it presents itself. He continued, quote, To be sure, this orthodoxy never was infallible, nor was it without its blemishes and foibles, but I am far from persuaded that the emancipation from its theological core that much of evangelicalism is affecting has resulted in greater biblical f- fidelity. In fact, the result is just the opposite. We now have less biblical fidelity, less interest in truth, less seriousness, less depth, less capacity to speak the word of God to our own generation in a way that offers an alternative to what it already thinks. The pressing question of our concern is this. Whatever happened to hell? What has happened so that we now find even some who claim to be evangelicals promoting and teaching concepts such as universalism, inclusivism, post-mortem evangelism, conditional immortality, and annihilationism, when those known as evangelicals in former times were known for opposing those very proposals? Many evangelicals seek to find a way out of, Bibli- out of the biblical doctrine that is marked by so much awkwardness and embarrassment. To ans- the answer to these questions must be found in understanding the impact of cultural trends and the prevailing worldview upon Christian theology. Ever since the Enlightenment, theologians have been forced to defend the very legitimacy of their discipline and proposals. A secular worldview that denies supernatural revelation must reject Christianity as a system and truth claim. At the same time, it seeks to transform all religious truth claims into matters of personal choice and opinion. Christianity, stripped of its offensive theology, is reduced to one spirituality among others. All of the same, there are particular doctrines that are especially odious and repulsive to the modern and postmodern mind. The traditional doctrine of hell as a place of everlasting punishment bears that scandal in a particular way. The doctrine is offensive to modern sensibilities and an embarrassment to many who consider themselves to be Christians. Those Uh, Friedrich Schliermacher called the cultured despisers of religion especially despise the doctrine of hell, and as one observer has quipped, hell must be air-conditioned. Liberal Protestantism and Roman Catholicism have modified their theological systems to remove this offense. No one is in danger of hearing a threatening fire and brimstone sermon in those churches. The burden of defending and debating hell now falls to the evangelicals, the last people who think that it matters. How is it that so many evangelicals, including some of the most respected leaders in the movement, now reject the traditional doctrine of hell in favor of, a, of annihilationism or some other option? The answer most surely, come, uh, most surely come down to the challenge of theodicy, the challenge to defend God's goodness against modern indictments. Modern secularism demands that anyone who would speak for God must now defend him. The challenge of theodicy is primarily to defend God against the problem of evil. The societies that gave birth to the decades of megadeath and the Holocaust, the abortion explosion, the institutionalized terror will now demand that God answer their questions and redefine himself according to their dictates. 
In the background to all of this is a series of interrelated cultural, theological, and philosophical changes that point to an answer for our question, what happened to evangelical convictions about hell? The first issue is a changed view of God. The biblical vision of God has been rejected by the culture as too restrictive of human freedom and offensive to human sensibilities. God's love has been redefined so that it is no longer holy. God's sovereignty has been reconceived so that human autonomy is undisturbed. In recent years, even God's omniscience has been redefined to mean that God perfectly knows all that he can perfectly know, but he cannot possibly know a future based on free human decisions. Think about open theism there. Um, evangelical revisionists promote an understanding of divine love that is never coercive and would, and would disallow any thought that God would send impenitent sinners to eternal punishment in the fires of hell. They are seeking to rescue God from the bad reputation he picked up by associating with theologians who for centuries taught the traditional doctrine. God is just not like that, they reassure us. He would never sentence anyone, however guilty, to eternal torment and anguish. Theologian Gerhardus Vos warned against abstracting the love of God from his other attributes, noting that while God's love is revealed to be his fundamental attribute, it is defined by his other attributes as well. It is quite possible to overemphasize this other side of truth as being as to bring into neglect other exceedingly important principles and demands of Christianity, he stressed. This would lead to a loss of theological equilibrium and balance, and in the, in the specific case of the love of God, it often leads to an unscriptural sentimentalism whereby God's love becomes a form of indulgence incompatible with his hatred of sin. In this regard, the language of the revisionist is particularly instructive. Any God who would act as the traditional doctrine would hold would be vindictive, cruel, and more like Satan than God. Clark Pinnock made the credibility of the doctrine of God to the modern mind a central focus of his theology. Quote, I believe that unless the portrait of God is compelling, the credibility of belief in God is bound to decline. Later, he suggested, today it is easier to invite people to find fulfillment in a dynamic, personal God than it would be to ask them to find it in a deity who is immutable and self-enclosed. Extending this argument further, it would surely be easier to persuade secular persons to believe in a God who would never judge anyone deserving of eternal punishment than it would to persuade them to believe in a God preached by Jonathan Edwards or Charles Spurgeon. But the urgent question is this, is evangelical theology about marketing God to our contemporary culture or is it our task to stand in continuity with orthodox biblical convictions, whatever the cost? As was cited earlier, modern persons demand that God must be a humanitarian, and he is held to human standards of righteousness and love. In the end, only God can defend himself against his critics. Our responsibility is to present the truth of the Christian faith with boldness, clarity, and courage— and defending the biblical doctrine in these times will require all three of these virtues. Hell is an assured reality just as it is presented so clearly in the Bible. To run from this truth, to reduce the sting of sin and the threat of hell, is to pervert the gospel and to feed on lies. Hell is not up for a vote or open for revision. Will we surrender this truth to modern skeptics? 
current controversies raise this issue anew among American Christians and even some among some evangelicals. Nevertheless, there is no way to deny the Bible's teaching on hell and remain genuinely evangelical. No doctrine stands alone. Fantastic article. Looking forward to reading part two. All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebrough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. You know, it's been a while since I've done a bad sermon review. As a result of it, you know, I'm falling behind in my work in Farmville. I wish that was a joke. <laughs> I was thinking about that going, you know, uh, it's been a while since I've done a few things in Farmville. I'm going, oh, yeah, I haven't reviewed any bad sermons lately. Yeah, Farmville uh, is like the pressure release valve for me. Let's uh, cue up the music here. Oh, man. Roseboro, you are, you are not healthy. Okay.
The good, the bad, and, uh, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Overlake Church in Renton, Washington. I wonder if they have any affiliation with Eastlake Church. Eastlake is a church I've been dying to do a sermon review for, but getting a hold of their sermons is a mysterium tremendum. Anyway, uh, the sermon today is entitled Pagan Love, and uh, it's uh, preached by uh, uh, lead pastor Mike Howerton. And uh, before we start off on the sermon review, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some props to uh, Pastor Howerton. And here's what I'm going to give him props for. I'm going to give him props for attempting to do an exegetical sermon where he's going, working through a passage. I've got to give him credit for that. And, and uh, so I, as you're listening to the sermon review, I want, to, I want you all to know that I, I don't want to be overly critical regarding that point because uh, he's not going and pulling a verse out of context here and ripping a verse out of context here and, you know, and then weaving it into some kind of bizarre narrative and saying things about the biblical text that you can't get if you were to read it in context. Now, that being said, the major problem with this sermon is that he doesn't correctly preach the gospel. He hints at it, and the gospel that he talks about is very vague and not very clear. And, you know, so that's the primary big problem with this. And you'll see as the sermon develops kind of where he's going and how, as a result of the way he's trying, it's, for lack of a better way of putting it, I would say it it feels like he's trying something on that he's never done before, and it might be that he's just not good at it, in that he just needs practice. So I want to encourage him to keep doing exegetical sermons, but that he might want to spend a little bit more time really truly understanding what the gospel is and what the law is and what the function of the law should be. So... Um, this is one of those sermons where it's not a complete train wreck. It, well, it, it it's more like a car wreck rather than a train wreck. It, it He still doesn't land on his feet, and it's not good where we go with the gospel on this one. But that being said, you know, let's uh, let's as we listen with the sermon on this one, let's try to give credit where credit is due and uh, and offer some constructive criticism so that uh, Pastor Mike Howerton will actually you know you know benefit from the critique that we offer here in the sense because I, I the fact that he's doing a uh, expository sermon it's on Titus if you want to have if you have want to follow along in your bible go to Titus chapter 1 and uh, and uh, we'll we, uh, we'll kind of pick up from there I'll point out along the ways how some of the stuff is not very helpful and you'll see what he's trying to do is he's mixing kind of the the seeker driven way of marketing a sermon to try to talk about Titus and and he doesn't really actually achieve the goal that he sets out to do. But anyway, we'll, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about as we listen to the to the message. Here we go. Here is uh, uh, Pastor Mike Howerton, Pagan Love, uh, the Titus Gospel. Over Lake, it is wonderful to be with you today. I love you. I miss you when I'm gone. It is awesome to be back in a great, great church. If this is your first time, we really are uh, glad that you're here, and we do want to honor you and welcome you uh, here today. Um, <clears throat> friends, 
God is so good, and it is so uh, fun to be with you and to open his word and to see what it is that he has for our lives today. If you have your Bibles with you, you might want to open them to Titus. We're going to be going through the book of Titus next couple of weeks, a series called Pagan Love. Fortunately, God loves pagans like us, and uh, that's what we see as we open this book called Titus. If you don't have your Bibles, there should be one in the seat back in front of you, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, we just want you to know that you can take that. Uh, we, uh, there should be a teal covered Bible in front of you in the seat back there. And, and honestly, that teal, that, that wasn't a theft prevention device, right? We want you to take, if you don't have a Bible, you steal the teal today. That's our gift to you. All right. So Titus. Okay. Uh, I want to point something out here. That's a perfectly wonderful thing to do. And, uh, one of the things you know, in, in reflecting on what I heard from uh, Ted Donnelly on this this uh, sermon, uh, that sermon, the lecture series we played last week regarding hell, something that really struck me as something that uh, I that you know I think we need to uh, discuss more often here at Fighting for the Faith, and that is this: is that um, for all the problems that we see in the seeker-driven methodology and all the problems we see in the crazy things that go on in the seeker-driven and purpose-driven churches, the one thing you cannot critique them for that they must be commended for is their absolute zeal for reaching the lost. They reach them with the wrong message. They reach them with really horrible methodologies. But the one thing you can say about these folks is that they have a heart for reaching the lost. So, um, if we're going to if we're going to spend some corrective work, you know, pointing out the fact that we've got a we've got a problem here theologically, we got a problem here methodologically, and that we're not hearing the gospel. Um, may I strongly encourage all of us, myself included, to not just use the critiques that we offer here at Fighting for the Faith as basically a way of saying, "Whew, I'm glad I'm not those guys," <laughs> and then sit back and do nothing. <laughs> Um, we got, uh, well, how do I want to phrase this is that may I strongly suggest that we come up with some strategies for outmaneuvering these guys out on the, in the, um, marketplace of ideas and, and match their zeal for reaching the lost and match it with, uh, we need to have an equal or greater than zeal for reaching the lost and to reach them with our good theology, with our sound methodologies, with our correct and proper and uh, proclamation of Christ and him crucified for our sins, proper distinction of law and gospel. May we match and exceed their zeal for reaching the lost. And so as I was listening to this, I mean, right off the bat, I mean, he's saying to the, your vis- the visitors there, this Bible that you see, you know, that, that's, you know, in the in the seat in front of you, you know, it, take it home. It's it's our gift to you. That's a great idea. Um, you know, come to think of it, I, you know, I wonder if the uh, the pastor at our church would ever say anything. You know, yeah, the, the the Bible that's in the pew in front of you. If you want to take it home, feel free. We'll don't, don't worry. We'll restock it. <laughs> so let's give some credit where credits due here. That's a great idea. Uh, and we want to go, what, is, what does pagan love look like? How does God love pagans? Does God really love everybody? Here's a question to start us off. Raise your hand if you have ever felt like a complete outsider. 
Raise your hand if, if somebody made you feel like, like they didn't want you to belong. Or Yeah, that's so many of us have had that experience. Uh, I will never forget when I was in ninth grade. Started a new school. My dad moved us across country. Started a new school. First day of school, I go into the cafeteria for lunch. And I get my tray of food and I look around for some safe harbor to eat my lunch in. I saw, uh, I saw that there was an open table. So I sat down by myself at an empty table thinking, well, this will be safe. Four upperclassmen come. They sit at the table. They say, hey, kid, this is our table. Get out. So in front of a crowded cafeteria, I I got up with my stuff. I walked through the cafeteria, hoping, praying that there would be someone with kind eyes that would offer me safe quarter. There was none. So I stood up, I ate my lunch standing, and I left the cafeteria as soon as possible, waiting for the world's longest lunch period to end. Can we just do a collective awe? I know, right? Whiner. Okay. (laughs) I'm over. Therapy has helped me. Uh, I, I want you to just feel sort of the weight of what that experience of being pushed outside feels like, of wanting to belong, but just feeling like you weren't wanted. Now, I also want you to think about the opposite of that. Think about how good it feels when you might have been on the outside, but somebody put their arm around you and welcomed you in. Somebody on the inside said, come on in, we want you here. Uh, An example of this from the music industry. Uh, This last week, a guy named Glenn Hansard, uh, he's a musician, and you might not have heard of him. He plays with a band called The Frames. He's actually uh, very, very successful. He acted and wrote in a movie that won an Academy Award called Once. And, And this is a guy, just an incredible talent, and he's on the inside. So he's playing in Seattle, a sold-out show at the, soul, at the showbox. He gets up, he performs, the crowd loves him, he goes off, they cheer him on, he comes back for his encore. And when he comes back out in front of this sold-out crowd, he um, says, you know, we got to Seattle a day early. And so last night we went out and we were just looking for something to do. We saw a place with some live music. So we went in and honestly, we weren't expecting much that we were figuring the talent would be thin. And this young kid gets up on stage and he looks terrified. And the rest of the people in, in this, uh, you know, this tiny little establishment, they were completely indifferent to this musician's presence there. But he begins to play and he poured his heart and his soul into it. And, and he's telling this in front of his, you know, his own sold-out show. And then he says, so we thought it would be fun to bring him here tonight to play for you. Would you please welcome this guy? And he welcomes him in, a, a young kid named Dylan, um, Dylan Warnick. And he, come on in, Dylan. And so they brought this young guy in front of this sold-out crowd. And, and the crowd was going nuts. They welcomed him. They were so excited. And then all he can think to say is, this is a dream come true for me. And then he began to play. And of course, the crowd went nuts. The roof blew off the show box. You probably read about it. Uh, Here's what I want you to see is that this is a picture of somebody who was on the inside, who reached out to somebody on the outside and said, come on in. I see you. I recognize you. I want you to be affirmed and encouraged. And friends, I want to... Okay, got, got a pause there. This, to me... Okay, this this is where we start to have problems, okay? This sounds like 
And, you know, it, it, my gut instinct, and I, and this is one of those things you're just going to have to say, okay, this is Chris's gut instinct. I'm not willing to die on this hill. But this sounds and feels a lot like the same kind of affirming gospel that I'm hearing from emergence and outlaw preacher types. And um, and it, it, one of the things when you listen to emergence and uh, and postmodern liberals is they have this this idea of the theology of the other and things like that and and so the the word he used was affirming and so what we're hearing here is about the love of God yes but notice what we're not hearing we're not hearing anything about the wrath of god we're not really hearing about what salvation is we're just hearing about re- including people who are on the outside this is not a substantial enough gospel um and the language he's using isn't biblically substantiated at all from the from the text from titus and so this now we're starting to run into some problems here early on in the sermon Okay, let's continue. I'm going to tell you, that's what Jesus is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what the good news of God's love for us is all about. And so we've called... Okay, yes, God loves us. But you need to explain that biblically. What does it mean that God loves us? Mm. I mean, you can go to the Romans passage, you know, that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. But I didn't hear that. Um, you can go to uh, John 3.16, For God so loved, you know, uh, loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. You could talk about that. Um you know, so yeah, we're hearing we're hearing something that sounds positive, that sounds nice, that, that God loves us, but we we're not like Dr. Mueller kind of pointed out. It's this overemphasis on love, or ab, it's this is an abstract love at this point. You, whereas the love of God isn't abstract in Scripture; it's it's firmly concreted into the cross and Jesus' suffering and bleeding and death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the dead for our justification. So we're hearing this uh, an abstract kind of love from God that supposedly is about you know people who are on the outside. Come on in, you know we'll affirm you. Yeah, this is a problem. This is a problem. This series, the, uh, the, you know, it's the Titus Gospel, Pagan Love. And honestly, I recognize by choosing the word pagan love, some of you were like super, oh, whoa, what's he going to be talking about? Is this a, a series on sex? Is this going to be interesting sex series? So he picked the name in, because it had marketing value, apparently. Like, I, I, how does this work? I don't. Here's the deal pagan simply means, if you go back through the history, pagan simply means, um, it means rustic. It means country bumpkin, right? It means, uh, uh, most commonly, it's referred to as outsider. That was the original use of the word outsider. Now, some of us in today's world, we've expanded the definition, obviously, and we refer to uh, pagan as somebody who's read the entire Twilight Saga, somebody who hails from Duval, Right? Uh, somebody who claims not to have Bieber fever, right? Uh, I mean, how could you not have Bieber fever? Hey, the guy's I, crazy. So, 
here's the deal. Uh, you go back through, you know, the history of the word. Bieber fever jokes. You know, you got to be careful with those because those are getting kind of overused. You just, you know, I'm just saying, you know. Unless you are a person who is an Orthodox Jew with impeccable lineage, then you're a Gentile. The world in the, in the first century and previous was split literally into two people. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. Most of us are unfamiliar with that word, Gentile. So we chose the Greek version of that word, which is pagan. And originally in the first century, you were either a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, or you were a pagan in that Greco-Roman world. Well, by the fifth century uh, AD, right, five centuries after Jesus came, uh, it had sort of morphed a little bit, and then you were either a Christian or you were a pagan. And what that means is that today you're here, and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it means that you were once a pagan and now you're not because now you're following Jesus. But it is so important for us to remember. Okay, notice the term, follower of Jesus, rather than believer. I think that's important because as, as the sermon develops, I'm going to point this out to you. It, it, he really falls short of, of actually explaining what the gospel is and somehow makes it sound like our lives are the gospel. You, you, you'll see what I mean. Let, let me continue. Now, whether you are a follower of Jesus right now or maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that God loves pagans. And if you're following Jesus right now, it's because God loved you when you were a pagan. And he sought after you and he called your name and he reached out for you because God loves pagans. God loves everybody. Now, I'm setting this series up intentionally. Notice, again, this love is abstract. Whereas the love that's described of, of God towards those who do not believe and trust in him, who are rebellious sinners, it says that God, you know, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for our sins. We're not hearing about the other part of this. We're just hearing this good news that God loves pagans. And this could really be misconstrued because he's not helping us helping keep our thoughts focused on what that means properly by giving us the opposite end of it, by showing Christ died for our sins. He's our Savior. He saves us from the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God. You know, things like that. that. See, as a result of only focusing on the positive and not really giving the negative, you know, if you, that we're, what we're getting here is like, a distorted view of what God is like. It, it, I mean, say that God loves pagans might sound like he likes partying with them or something. Yeah. Originally this way, because so often in today's world, especially in church world, we've got this preconceived idea of who God loves and who God doesn't love. Right? We've got this idea of exactly what God is like. We've now notice he hasn't really even truly gotten into the biblical text yet. That's kind of the big problem here, is we're starting off with his thoughts rather than God's. I do promise you, though, he's going to attempt to do an exegetical sermon. You just stay with it. Nail them down. And we know what God looks like. We know how God spends his money. We know how God votes because he does these things exactly like we do, right? And the reason why people in the church world have done all this is because they weren't content to be made in God's image. They decided to return the favor. And we have remade God in our image. 
And we have said that he is just like us. And so anytime we're marching into an argument, marching into a debate, marching into a war, we're confident that God is on our side because we've made him us. So I want to begin this whole series talking about the reality that God is bigger, that God is more wonderful, that God loves everyone. Before we ever loved God, God loved us. Notice again, he's not anchoring that in the biblical text. As a result of it, we're just hearing about an abstracted love of God, and we're not getting the full picture, right? Okay, um, the Gospel of John, the tail end of it, okay? Um, here's what it says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I remember old Walter Martin, uh, that dearly beloved saint now uh, who's, you know, may God rest his soul. I remember he, I mean, he would get worked up about this. I mean, I just remember old Walter Martin, his big booming voice going, basically saying, you know, of of people who preach like this, God loves you, (laughs) God loves you, butter wouldn't melt in their mouth, he would say. You've got to tell them more than that God loves them. You have to tell them that God is going to judge them. You need to tell them about the coming wrath of God, that he's going to throw their tiny little carcasses into the lake of fire because of their evil wickedness. And that they're going to, you, know, you, you get what I'm saying? So, I mean, John 3, you know, is where we get that wonderful passage, for God so loved the world, it doesn't, it, it's not talking in abstract. For God, let me read it for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What does it mean he gave? Immediately the cross is conjured up. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So when I read these passages in talking about the love of God, notice that it fills out the whole picture here. It gives us a proper way to understand the love of God, and we're not dealing with love in some kind of an abstract sense where you can just kind of pour into that abstract meaning your own subjective ideas as to what that is. God's love is demonstrated in a very specific way, towards us rebel sinners. It's demonstrated in that Christ died for our sins. And that other part of that is missing. So when we hear that wonderful passage, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. If you just stop there and people go, oh, that's so good. God doesn't want to condemn us. But then you read the rest of it. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Saved? We need saving? Saving from what? I mean, when we talk about saving, right? You know, you, you know, when you watch the news, you know, you're flipping channels. You know, in the middle of the night, you have insomnia like I do, and you, you know, you're flipping channels, and you you come across the eleven o'clock news, and and you got this reporter going, and today, uh, uh you know, three uh, off-duty uh, firefighters saved a little girl from drowning in a frozen pond. Okay. The word saved 
is one of those words that implies that somebody was in danger of something, something horrible, something cataclysmic. When we talk about saving someone's life, or you understand what I'm saying, that that, that implies that there was mortal danger, that, that we were going to lose that person, right? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Saved from what? Why do I need saving? We always talk about Jesus, our Savior. What did he save you from? Answer, he saved you from the punishment that you deserved for your sins that would have been given to you at the end of time when Christ Jesus returns in glory to judge both the living and the dead. He saved you from the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God. So notice here, uh, Mike, you know, he's telling us, oh, God wants to, he, he wants the outsiders to come in. He, he wants to affirm you, and God loves you, and he loves pagans. Really? Okay. Yeah, but you're not really. You've this is an abstracted love. You need to tell me more biblically about what we're talking about here. Let's continue. So we're going to show you a video, and it simply communicates this idea that God loves everybody. I hope you enjoy this. All right. Yeah. Just so you know, um, the video was not part of the audio, so we don't get to hear it. So I don't know what it was. Catchy tune. You'll be humming it later. You're welcome. You know, it's true. It's true. Everything except for the vegetables turning into dancing candy part. Uh, everything else is true, that God is love, that God loves everybody. That's the message uh, that again and again we see in this short little book called Titus. And I, I want to unpack it just a little bit because Titus is... It's really, the book of Titus tells us that God loves everyone? Now, this is an interesting thing. Again, um, it might I'm, I'm going to try to put the best construction on this. I'm just thinking that maybe he's not used to doing exegetical preaching. But correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't Titus one of the pastoral epistles? Is a person that Paul is writing a letter to. And he's writing a letter to this guy, Titus. Titus was a pagan. And Paul shared the love of God with Titus. And so Titus, this pagan who didn't know God and didn't know Jesus, gave his life to Jesus and then became um, transformed. And Paul mentored him and, and he grew him in the faith. And then Titus then became this young leader in the first century church. So that um, when Paul was dealing with the mess in Corinth and the church there, he sent Titus along. And if you know, if you've ever read through the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you know there was a mess in the church in Corinth, right? And I'm not just talking about a plate of spilled baklava, right? There was like, it was messy. And Titus was sent for a reason because he had this winsome, gracious, and mature demeanor about him. He was able to bring... I had no idea that Titus was winsome. No, I did not know that. I wasn't familiar with any text that talked about Titus's winsomeness. Hmm. Order, peace, unity, and honorable living to the church there. So Paul, wanting to showcase this young leader, uh, he also uh, sent him to the island nation of Crete. 
Now, uh, Crete is, uh, it was a beautiful um, sort of vacation destination type of uh, place, lovely, but it was also a total mess. The church there was a mess. And um, there was this civilization that had grown up, the Minoan civilization, but it was sort of destroyed when the Romans took over. Uh, and and uh, the island had sunk into kind of a dark ages there. The people in that culture under that Roman oppression, they did not flourish. And they were They'd gained a reputation for being lazy, for being uh, cheat. Okay, now I want to point something out. What does this demonstrate that he's done? He's done some research. He might have read a few commentaries. He's trying to get a better grasp of what's going on in the book of Titus. Positive thing. Good, 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 good. So we got to give him props here. We got to give him credit where credit's due. Okay? Uh, cheats and liars. In fact, there was a saying in the first century to speak like a Cretan, which meant that uh, they would not tell the truth. Even if you tried to pin them down, you got them face to face, they would look in your eye and they would speak falsehoods to you. In our world today, we have a saying, it's to speak like you live in Renton, which <laughs> I don't really know what that means. Uh, no, just kidding. I love Renton. I really do. Renton, if you have ever been on their website for the city, they're ahead of the curve. And I assume that means as you're going south on the 405, it's just before the curve, uh, they're <laughs> located there. So what Paul does is he writes a letter to Titus, and he's encouraging him and instructing him in his leadership of the churches that are there. So he offers, if you're filling in the blanks, greetings and grace at the beginning of this letter. He begins... Titus 1.1, it says, This letter is from Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. What translation is he working from? I'll, I'll see if I can hunt this down. Okay, the first uh, line to f- underline is, Paul is sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen. Now, elsewhere, Paul states his mission statement very clearly, that Paul is sent by God to proclaim faith to the Gentiles, to the pagans in his world. And so what Paul is saying here is that God loves pagans and God has chosen pagans to receive his message, and that's where I'm going because God loves pagans. Okay? So he is sent by God. Okay, yeah. Here's here's the mistake he made. Okay? He didn't begin with the text. He began with his own ideas, tried to weave in some of the stuff he was reading in his sermon prep from the commentaries, which is commendable, to try to give us a little bit of context. I still haven't figured out what translation he's working from. I hate to look, but you know, maybe I'll see if he's using the message. Hang on a second here. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um I, I not, I'm not sure yet. Still trying to figure it out. Um, but uh, at this point, um, he's he's reading things into the text that I just can't. I can't. I just can't see that they're justified. So here, let's do this. If you have your, you should have your Bibles already. So you should be in Titus chapter one. I'll start at verse one. Let's read a little bit. And then let's see if we can suck up the context here. And it's a good idea, especially if you're reading an epistle. Read the whole thing. 
I mean, Titus is short, okay? And and you know, read the whole thing, and then go, be, you know, get the forest view, and then come back into the the tree the tree view. It's it's a great way to to read the Bible. But so let's uh, let's do some reading here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching uh, which with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Now, I just want to point something out here, This just historically real quick here, is you'll notice that all of the letters that you read in the New Testament have kind of these little openings like this. And there's something to keep in mind is that... Um, Many times in the ancient world, uh, things were written down on scrolls, okay? And scrolls would get rolled up, okay? And so when somebody was going to read something, you know, to check, well, what's this scroll about? They'd grab the scroll and go, and they'd read the first few paragraphs of it and go, okay, that's what that is. I don't know if I want to read that. And then put away, grab another one, and then, yeah, by the way, that, 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 those sound effects, those are free. And so they go, whoop. And they would read the next line. And so many times in the ancient world, the authors you know, who wrote scrolls, they would actually spend the most time kind of working those first few paragraphs because uh, those were the ones that kind of hooked people into wanting to read more. You know, so um, I guess the equivalent today would be if, if, uh, if an author really spent a lot of time trying to really make that first chapter of their book grab you. So that you know, and you know, and so they spent the most time really on that first chapter, and you know that was the most polished grammatically, and all that's what goes on here. And so what we have is a typical ancient uh, opening here, you know, uh, you know, with all the stuff that's going on, and in the Greek, it's the most polished of the this, this section, and then we get to verse four: "To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior." This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. But as for you, 
You teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers, authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and they are worthless. For a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to send to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing." And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Now, that's all of Titus. Notice how the pivot point for all of the good works is the gospel. Always, 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 always. The pivot point for our good works is the gospel. The good news of Christ Jesus showing mercy for us by dying and redeeming us from all lawlessness and sinfulness. Ah, right. 
And so then what happens then is, is that our sanctification is the process by which God then begins to conform us into the image of Christ and begins to prune away all of those works of righteousness because we're not set free to sin. We are set free and redeemed by Christ from slavery to sin. So now we walk in newness of life, and he's encouraging them and spurring them on to good works and to embracing the new man that God has made them to be in Christ. Good stuff. And so the, the people who are to be leaders in the church, the overseers and the, the ones who are to be the pastors, they're to, be ex- they're to exemplify this new sanctified life in Christ, and it shows forth in fruits, this, these fruits of good works in their lives, and they are to be handlers, proper handlers of God's Word, and they have to have a backbone too, a backbone to rebuke those who preach false doctrine. And Paul said, rebuke them sharply. He didn't say, go up to them and say, ah, shucks, you know, hmm. yeah, I'm kind of sort of maybe thinking that maybe kind of sort of that maybe that maybe, you know, you could kind of sort of maybe say things, you know, no, that's not what he's saying at all. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So, I mean, having read all of this, I know where the pastor's going to go with this. Now let's see what he does, because this is the expository portion of the sermon. Let's see where he's going to take it. God, to proclaim faith to those God has chosen in this world. And then he says he has uh, chosen uh, them, and he wants to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Second thing I want you to... Found it. (laughs) New Living Translation. I had to go onto a... I don't own this, so I had to go to the... Uh, BibleGateway.com. It's uh, he's reading from the New Living Translation. Whew, boy, this reads more like a paraphrase than a translation. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and teach them to know the truth that they that shows them how to live godly lives. Whew, wow, that's bad. Yeah, it's it sounds like uh, the gospel is. Your godly life, woo, you, yeah, you might want to work on it. Work from a better translation, uh, Mike. This is not a good one. I'm telling you, this one, this one ain't. Nah, yeah, no, I don't recommend this at all. To see is that when we accept the truth of God's grace in our life, it will lead us to live a life that reflects His truth. And when we say yes to God's grace, then mm-hmm. Pelagianism. God's love comes in, transforms us, and then the life that we live, the character that we exude, it will point others to God's goodness and God's grace. And that's what Paul now, said. Now, this is true to a point. He, this is actually discussed in uh, the latter parts of this letter. So he does have a point here, okay? And that is, is that our good works definitely show that something, that God is doing something in our lives, Okay. But the thing is, is that we're called to proclaim the gospel, not our lives. And I fear that this New Living translation, because he's reading it from that, which is really not a good translation at all. Man, boy, is that bad. Yeah, let me read it from the ESV. Uh, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. 
is here in verse 1. Verse 2 says, This truth gives them confidence that they will have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. So this is the truth, right? God has communicated his love. He's communicated this from the, you know, the depths of time past. God's love for them has been a reality. But then Paul says this interesting phrase, God does not lie. God does not lie. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, God does not lie. Did you ever think that there were some things God cannot do? He cannot lie. He cannot do anything that would contradict his character. This is a good point. God can't sin. Sin and God cannot coexist because God is holy. God is righteous. So sin cannot come into his presence. God can't sin. It's not attractive to him, but he just can't. It's against his nature. So God cannot lie. And what that means, the practical implication for your life, is that means you can depend on him. You can trust what he says. You, you can have faith in God because God doesn't change. He's not going to change his opinion. He's not going to move around. He's not a moving target. He is love, and he will tell you the truth. And so you can trust him. Now, God doesn't lie, but his enemy does, right? Satan, the enemy of God, your enemy as well. Satan is known as the father of lies. You know how I know? Because he says that he hates Justin Bieber. And honestly, how could you hate Justin Bieber, right? I mean, it's a total liar. No, I'm just kidding. That was a joke, and you didn't laugh. Uh, yeah, I'm telling you, it's like the Justin Bieber jokes have been overdone. Yeah. So I'm praying that the 6 p.m. service finds it funny. Uh, or else I'll go 0 for 3 on that one. No, Satan is a liar. God tells the truth. The next verse uh, is this. It says, and now at just the right time, he has revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. It is by the command of God, our Savior, that I have been entrusted with this work for him. Uh, The phrase I'd love to focus on is that first one, just the right time. God has revealed this message of Jesus Christ. You know, Gary last week talked about time, talked about how there's chronos time, chronology, it's the TikTok time, but he also talked about kairos time, which means in the fullness of time, in due time. It's almost like there, there are times when there's an anointing on a moment, an anointing on a season. And what Paul's saying here is at just the right time, in God's infinite wisdom, this was the time to reveal Jesus Christ and to begin to proclaim the words of his arrival into this earth, his salvation, which is for all people. And then it says, which we announce to everyone, which we announce. If you go into the meaning of that word, it, it means proclaim. Uh, it also, you could literally describe it, transliterate it as it means to trumpet. We trumpet this message to everyone. Now, rhetorical question. What message are you trumpeting with your life? Okay, now there's the problem. Whoop. Wow. Okay. The gospel is not... uh, We preach and proclaim the gospel, Christ and him crucified for our sins. And through the sanctifying work of the Spirit... And because we are a new creation in Christ, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We begin to do good works in accord 
with the new man that is created in us through the preaching of the gospel. Yeah, this is what I'm afraid of, is, is that because he's working from using the New Living Translation here, I think he's taking that thing in, in verse 1 and misapplying it in such a way that now apparently my life becomes the gospel. Yeah, that's a problem. That, that no bueno. This is not good. When people look at your life, what is it they, they see you proclaiming? What are you announcing with your arrival into your workplace or in your classroom? What are you announcing in your household or in your neighborhood? That I'm overweight? What, what is it that your life trumpets? Paul says, we trumpet, we announce. Th- that I need less Twinkies? I mean. <laughs> this message to everyone. Okay, verse 4, I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. Titus is his true son in the faith. In other words, Paul was able to introduce Jesus to Titus. Paul was able then to mentor him and, and grow him up in the faith. And then he says it's because of Jesus Christ that grace and peace come into our lives. Right? And so we see this in Titus's life, grace and peace through Jesus. Now, Paul will instruct Titus to organize these churches in the island of Greece. And you're going to notice as Paul instructs Titus, he says, let's not go after rules. Let's not just focus on behavior, but let's go after character. Because we recognize that character is at the heart of all things. In our- yeah, I read the entire letter to Titus. I don't recall that part about let's you know let's push into character stuff. Yeah, I feel like he's you know, see and this may be a supreme lack of understanding of the proper distinction between the law and the gospel here. Our conduct is simply a revelation of our character. So what you'll notice in this short book is that Paul does not identify one system that everybody's got to follow when it comes to living in a church context because he knows that any system is going to fail unless there are godly men and women that are leading, right? Any system will fail unless there's that sense of... How do you know Paul was thinking contra systems? I, 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 huh? ...of godliness and righteousness unless the grace of Jesus Christ has truly transformed our hearts. So that's what he's going to go after. So, again, if you're feeling in that phrase, the grace has truly transformed our hearts. You know, that sounds so much like the Roman Catholic concept of grace. It's frightening. The blanks. The first thing Paul offers is greetings and grace. The second thing he offers is a challenge into leadership, a challenge into leadership. And Paul's going to talk with Titus about what does it look like to establish good leaders in all these churches in Crete. He begins in verse 5, says, I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. There were, uh, there were churches in every city-state on the island of Crete at this time. 
And scholars are a bit, uh, there's a little bit of discussion as to how these churches got there. Maybe Paul had a, a trip, a mission trip there previously. We don't have any record of that. Uh, maybe other disciples had visited the island of Crete. Some scholars think that even after the day of Pentecost, which happened at the very beginning of Acts, that there were some there from Crete who accepted Christ. They went back to Crete and started churches. We just don't know. All we know is that there are churches there and we see that Paul says, I left you on the island of Crete. That sounds like a banishment. It's not. It was, it was a lovely place. Uh, he has a purpose there. It's to bring this uh, a gravitas of leadership to these different churches. What is interesting, and you and I, this makes Gravitas? <laughs> I haven't heard that word being used since people were critiquing George W. Bush for not having gravitas. How many years has that been? Sense to us when we sort of get our minds around it, there was a great deal of mythology in Crete. And this, it makes sense to us when you think about what you know of Greek mythology. But Crete, it, it was, the, the, the mythology is that it was ruled by a guy named King Minos, M-I-N-O-S. And he was the guy who housed the Minotaur in a labyrinth. And the civilization that had grown up at Crete was called the Minoan civilization after King Minos. So it's not surprising that mythology was prevalent in this culture and that they really did believe in a pantheon of capricious gods that, you know, would do all kinds of crazy things to humans and, and all this stuff. And it's in that context that people had come to Jesus Christ. They'd begun to assemble in churches, but there was no, leadership was lacking. And so, uh, Paul wants Titus to establish elders. What I want to do is I want to talk to the men and the women in the room. I don't just, I want to talk to guys. I want to talk to both men and women, and I want to expand it so that I, I don't just want this passage to refer to elders. I want it to refer to all Christ followers who are ready and they're willing to take a step forward into leadership, however God's calling you. Mm-hmm. Okay, a little uncomfortable with uh, you just feeling like you have the freedom to just start using the text any old way you want to. All right. That's what I want. Now, if you're here and you're just checking this whole God thing out and you're asking questions, it's a great place to be because you get a front row seat as to how those who have been impacted by the grace of Jesus Christ are to live, how their character is to reveal itself in this world. Okay, so Paul continues. Uh, he says in Titus 1, 6, an elder must live a blameless life. A leader must live a blameless life. And, and a lot of you are going, well, that puts me right out. Uh, Mike, I was with you, you know, right up until the first requirement. And uh, then I realized uh, it's not for me anymore. Here's what I want you to understand. The idea of blameless life, let's just unpack it for a moment. This does not mean you've got to be perfect. You're not perfect and I'm not perfect. There's no elder that's perfect. There's no leader that's perfect. This is not about a theology of perfection. But what it does require is a humility to recognize that when you make a mistake, you own up to it and you confess it. And yeah, I, I think the problem is, is that you're using a, a paraphrase rather than a good translation. Yeah, the first qualification for an elder um, here is, um, if anyone is above reproach, if anyone is above reproach, uh, that kind of, uh, 
puts it into a different context. Um, yeah, it, although an, anagkletos is the uh, Greek word there, one of its you could say blameless, but it, it, you know that that gets a little confusing. I like the way the ESV puts it as above reproach or irreproachable. Um, yeah, uh-huh. and you repent and you make it right. You keep short accounts. With- okay, hold on. Got to back this up. The reason why is because I'm constantly hearing gospel-ish sounding phrases, but I'm not hearing about the forgiveness of sins. So let's, uh, I need to back this up just a few seconds and let's... Elder that's perfect. There's no leader that's perfect. This is not about a theology of perfection. But what it does require is a humility to recognize that when you make a mistake, you own up to it and you confess it and you repent and you make it right. You keep... Yeah, I'm not hearing any part about the forgiveness of sins there. Um, how about the shed blood of Christ? Um yeah, this yeah, this is this is turning into a pretty bad law sermon and and this is and he set out to point out that this is supposed to be a sermon about uh, the gospel to the pagans and I'm not hearing the biblical gospel of Christ crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification but I sure I'm hearing a lot of behavior modification Keep short accounts with your friends, short accounts with your business partners, short accounts with your spouse, and short accounts with Jesus Christ. Okay, So that's the kind of reality when blameless, I, I want you to take it. It doesn't mean perfect. It simply means humble and authentic, that we walk with Jesus in a transparent fashion. Now, the next thing he says is he must be faithful to his wife and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. Okay, we'll unpack that a bit. Faithful to one wife. Again, remember, this is first century Greece. So in this context, were there people who had more than one wife? In other words, was polygamy still practiced? It was. Next question. Were there people who had one wife but additional girlfriends on the side? Yes, that still happens today, by the way. All right. Were there people who had a wife at home but had homosexual relationships in the community? Yes. There were. In fact, if you've ever studied Socrates, Plato, you understand this was a prevalent part of this first century uh, Greco-Roman culture. Were there still people who followed pagan temple worship practices and visited the prostitutes in the temples? Yes, there were. Now, are there all sorts of sexual expressions happening today in our culture 2,000 years later? Yes, there are. All right, what Paul is saying is that because God loves pagans, because pagans are watching your lives as you follow Jesus Christ, it's important for you to reveal by your life that you believe God's way is the best way. Mm. Yikes. <sighs> yeah, rather than focusing in on the fact that Jesus Christ... um he was completely blameless. He was completely sinless. And his perfect righteousness and sinlessness is given to us as a gift. Remember, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, possessive genitive there, the righteousness of God that's given to us, imputed to us by Christ. Jesus is all about, you know, the, the gospel message is all about substitution. 
Jesus dying for the wicked ones in their place, his righteousness given to the wicked as if they're the ones who lived it. Ah, yeah, I just, because, here's the deal, there's some there's some merit to this concept, but the problem is, is because the cross and the real biblical gospel isn't really at the center of all of this, this is the kind of stuff that turns into works righteousness and a misbelief that my life is the gospel. Yeah, my life isn't the gospel. What you should see from me and my life is forgiven sinner and bearing my life bearing fruit in good works as a forgiven sinner. Hmm. 